0: The Artificial Intelligence Podcast. AI in real life.
1: When I was little, we used to have this tradition. Right after dinner, for 30 minutes or so, me, my mom, and my dad would break out my dad's FinTouch Duplo set. You know Duplo? It's like Lego, but with huge blocks. Aimed at really young kids, or in my case, really uncoordinated kids. Anyway, my mom had this book called Monuments of the World, and we'd browse through it and pick anything. A pyramid, a bridge, a church, and then we'd spend months trying to recreate it in Duplo. With varying degrees of success, honestly, because Duplo isn't really suited to create shapes other than, you know, squares or rectangles. Not always perfect, but we could build almost anything from Duplo. Imagine if this were possible with AI. My name is Lia Wang and in this episode, I'm joined by Bruno Jakic, who released his first piece of software to the public when he was 17. Remember what you were doing when you were 17? Yeah, let's not talk about that. Later in 2007, Bruno started AI Applied, with the intention of using AI to solve real problems. Kind of what all of us are trying to do right now, except he thought of it 10 years before the rest of us. He's here to share his view on AI, which is an out of the box, creative one. To me, Bruno is not just an AI scientist or engineer, but an AI artist.
0: Um, I came to the Netherlands when I was 11 years old, actually, as a refugee from Bosnia, together with my parents. Um, a A year later, we were finally allowed to stay here for a projected period of time. So that was just before uh, or at the start of school holidays. Mm -hmm. So uh, I didn't go to school. I didn't know any language. I didn't have any friends uh, in my new environment. So I was extremely bored. Yeah. Um, And my parents uh, bought me a very old computer, which was an Atari 800XE from 1987. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I could probably tell you a story about that that would last two hours, but... (laughs) I shouldn't. Uh, so because I had a lot of time and I had nothing to do, I taught myself programming. And uh, this was something that I enjoyed extremely much.
1: You were 11.
0: Uh, 12 by that time. 12. Yeah, oh, that's 12, right. That's way yeah, better. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, the machine and I had a connection, you could say. And uh, once I started going to high school, where they had modern PCs, uh, you know, I started improving my skills on infrastructure that wasn't entirely mine, mm-hmm. uh, but that uh, nevertheless, um, I could increasingly well control, yeah. uh, to the frustration of our systems administrator, <laughs> uh, to be honest. Uh, it's also, by the way, where I met uh, my best friend and business partner, Mark. Yeah. So we've been friends for 22, two, three years now. Uh, and um, I also had a paper route. <laughs> at a time, which really taught me that I didn't want to work in a company where other people were making decisions for me. You know, I wanted to do something creative and be able to break out.
1: So you were 12 when you learned programming. You were maybe like 15, 16 when you decided, I'm going to start my own business. That's right. And then you ended up in artificial intelligence.
0: That's right. Um, I I started studying computer science at the University of Amsterdam when I was 18. And I also started freelancing, so just building systems uh, for people. Uh, websites, stuff like that. Uh, And after two or three months of computer science, I realized that that's not something that I want to be doing for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. because it was very theoretical and it was much less about applications and much more about, you know, the inherent technology. Um, So uh, scanning through the curriculum of uh, adjacent fields, I found artificial intelligence and I thought this is exactly what I want to be doing. Uh, because, you know, it's all focused on applications and it's actually focused on novel applications where pretty much every time that you do something, it is novel. It is something that nobody has done before.
1: And this was 15 years ago? Uh,
0: this was um, 17, 18 years ago. So, yeah.
1: so what was AI back then?
0: <laughs> well, it wasn't fundamentally different, uh, actually, from uh, from what it is now, except that unlike now, it wasn't being applied anywhere. So it was very much in a lab, but uh, the methods, the the technologies, the the ways of reasoning, even the actual algorithms uh, were fairly, you know, analogous or pretty much the same to to what we're doing now. Yeah. Um, Of course, we did learn a lot about the legacy of AI, so things that people used to do in the 70s and 80s, about which we by now knew that they actually don't work. Mm. (laughs) So...
1: So the big sort of learning curve in terms of algorithm actually mm-hmm. took place from the 70s to the 90s or 2000s? Oh, even earlier, from, even the, earlier? Uh, from the
0: 50s to, to say, uh, early 2000s. Yeah. That would be where the most work was, uh, with some very notable exceptions uh, in the late 2000s, uh, namely novel ways to train artificial neural networks, yeah. which is very popular now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, most algorithms by far trace back a very long time. The only reason that they weren't used or applied in any capacity is that we didn't have powerful enough hardware. So now hardware has become cheap enough and powerful enough that we can do really useful and pretty amazing things with these same algorithms.
1: Hardware and uh, data collection, I sure, assume.
0: Sure, yeah. So as long as you're talking about machine learning, because uh, machine learning isn't the only discipline. Yeah. That would be that would fall under artificial intelligence.
1: Yeah. So you and Mark, two buddies, were studying AI back then, and at some point you were finished. Yeah. And then what happened?
0: Right. So uh, even during our studies, uh, you know, M- M- Mark occasionally was was working in a supermarket, and occasionally also freelancing. And I was freelancing pretty much all the time. And we thought we have by now so much knowledge that is so useful. That apparently isn't being used anywhere except in extremely large companies, mm-hmm. and we are absolutely certain that we can make so many things better, or at least according to what we think is better, um, uh, when applying them uh, to real problems. Uh, so we started AI applied in two thousand seven
1: mm-hmm.
0: with the explicit idea of applying this knowledge to practical problems, as the name it might be suggesting.
1: Right, right. And then how did that go? How did you find your first clients, your first your first problems to solve?
0: Um, we were slightly inspired to start a company because somebody came to us with a question uh, that pertained to uh, to what you could do with these technologies. Uh, so we thought, okay, we have our first client. It's not a lot of money, but uh, if people are starting to realize, you know, how useful this is, then mm-hmm. this, is, this is the moment to start. So in the beginning, we did uh, really all kinds of uh, jobs and all kinds of stuff that pertains to the application of artificial intelligence and intelligence systems. That would range from, you know, all kinds of visually focused systems. So, you know, a system that would recognize age and gender uh, based on images back in 2009 or so. Yeah. To a system that would create a, a, a taste preference profile in wine and food. Yeah. That would use artificial intelligence on it back and, and just like a whole lot uh, of things like that.
1: And at some point, the thought of a Lego box started forming for you guys.
0: Right. So we noticed that, uh, well... We knew this before, but we noticed when we were working on this that a lot of things that we do, uh, when built in an appropriate way, are highly reusable. Uh, So we started collecting this toolbox uh, of technologies that, that we were working with, and we really started building them as Lego blocks, almost.
1: So what's in this box? What is, like, a tool that you can develop in such a way that is reusable regardless of the industry or, or the public or all those things?
0: Right. So, you know, a part of that is custom algorithms, because uh, you see already then uh, what we were doing is combining all kinds of very disparate data sources that have very very different modalities so algorithms that can combine different types of data mm-hmm. inside a single algorithm and model it inside a single model mm-hmm. uh, that's that's something that immediately came into the box and that you always need exactly and the other thing uh, was because a lot of uh, demand at the time was uh, very strongly text focused so you know how can we process text how can we derive insights from vast amounts of data coming from social media forums? Yada yada yada. Yeah. Uh, we built a whole platform actually for text processing.
1: And then, so part of your platform is data processing, mm-hmm. and then part of it specializes in text processing. That's right. And then what blocks are inside of text processing? How do you break that up?
0: Right. So um, uh, it's a number of systems that uh, cooperate, but that can also be used separately from each other. Uh, and uh, the main system is, of course, uh, language detection. So once you have written text, you want to know what language is it written in. Uh, And then we have a topic detection and extraction system. So that system really looks at every text and uh, tries to kind of automatically tag it. You know, if you had to describe this text with a number of words or phrases, what would these words or phrases be? And these are both words and phrases that exist in the text itself, uh, as well as uh, much more abstract and conceptual definitions of what is in the
1: text. So it's not just selecting the word that uh, comes into the text most often, for instance.
0: Yeah so th- that's a part of it and then the other part of it is actually trying to put that word uh, under a more abstract uh, idea yeah. uh so that you can analyze this text on multiple uh, levels of uh, abstraction yeah uh which might be useful uh, you know uh for different uh, for different types of applications yeah so once we have uh these topics uh, then of course we really want to know what kind of uh, sentiment is expressed about these topics so per topic we can see you know, are, how strongly are people positive or negative about this? Occasionally, there are some other dimensions to it. You know, you can go up to, you know, seven levels of salience. Are people angry, happy, yada, yada, yada? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, another thing that uh, appeared to be fairly necessary was uh, detecting uh, something about the person who wrote the text. Mm-hmm. So mainly uh, gender and their age. And we also built a system that is able to estimate this just from the text itself. So uh, how do you do that? Uh, yeah so that 's a great question um if you 're talking about age, uh, you know different generations tend to have language use that uh, kind of uh, tells you something about what generation they belong to, and that is not only because they might have their own unique words and phrases but also because they might be using certain words and phrases that everybody uses uh, in d- differing levels right and then again, there are two aspects to that so uh, th- there is uh, what we call Topical language use. So when you're 16, you might be more prone to use the current street slang than when you're, say, 50. Mm -hmm. Uh, But some of the street slang of when you were 16 actually carries over and keeps following your generation. So the system is uh, basically able to model both things.
1: Yeah. So I talk differently now than 20 years ago. But people my age talk differently now than 20 years ago right. also. Those are the things you're, you're exactly. taking into account. Exactly. And exactly. how do you train this algorithm? Because it's supposed to be general if it's a Lego box, right? So, right. so what's that general data set that you That's use? Right.
0: So uh, we, we have chosen to do probably one of the hardest things uh, when you're training t- text uh, recognition yeah, I algorithms. Yeah, so. um, And uh, we mined uh, tens of millions of messages from Twitter Uh, for instance, with all kinds of smileys, etc., that would provide us very, very weak signals and Mm. also, you know, very dirty language, a language that is full of abbreviations, a language that is full of slang, a language that is full of of typing errors.
1: So you thought if we can analyze Twitter, we can analyze anything.
0: Exactly, exactly, because it's very short messages. So usually for computers, it's very difficult to uh, recognize the meaning of a very short message. It's easier when you have more data. Um, so if we if we can build a system that can perform fairly well on Twitter, then it's likely to perform very well on any other task. And is that
1: true, though? Because I think one thing that we've seen is that, mm-hmm. for instance, analyzing short pieces of text right. is actually completely different from analyzing long pieces of text. So part of it generalizes, but part right. of it also doesn't.
0: Right. So actually, there are multiple dimensions to that because another dimension is topicality and context. So, you know, you, you cannot just willy-nilly take a Twitter train system and apply it to any problem. But um, if you consider a long text and a formal text uh, as, a, as a collection of sentences, and if you decide to process your tweets as sentences as well, then you have established, uh, you know, a common measure that is applicable across uh, these different lengths of texts. So that's really not much of a problem. Uh topicality is a different thing entirely. So once you have a system that is trained, uh, say, on Twitter, which is extremely general and can be about any topic, yeah. uh, and if you want to apply it with very high accuracy to a very, very particular area, yeah. then you do need to perform a little bit of fine-tuning and retraining. Yeah. So we have built our infrastructure in a Lego box uh, in such a way that it can actually work with uh, different models. So we can take our basic model. We can adapt it to a specific task. And then without changing the infrastructure, we can improve the quality of the output. But only when it's necessary.
1: And how do you look, for instance, at the big boys like Microsoft Azure that are now also starting to build these Lego boxes very similar to yours, right? Data processing, data analyzing, infrastructure, plug and play.
0: Right. Well, I think that they're making the same assumption that we made when we started out, which was that we could just publish these services and have people use them. Uh, and it turns out that a number of people who actually know how to use this type of systems effectively uh, is much lower <laughs> than what you might assume, so uh, what they provide you know is generally pretty decent to build proofs of concept and for certain tasks uh, is perfectly well suited. Uh, but oftentimes this is not, you know, building these services is not their main driver. Mm. So this is where they will stop. Uh, What they actually want to do is draw you towards the infrastructure so they have a different strategic objective.
1: It's more a lead funnel almost to them.
0: Exactly. What what we do is we don't think about this as technology. Uh, We think about this as just tooling that we can use in order to solve a problem. So the problem is leading, and then depending on, you know, the modalities of the problem, we might or might not use certain tools. We might adapt them in certain ways. We might combine them with, you know, very disparate data sources. And in the end, hopefully, uh, we will have a solution. So if you are very solutions-focused, whereas they tend to be just much more technology-offers, tool tool-focused, yeah.
1: And, and what would be a typical problem that, that you solve, that people come to you with?
0: Right. So um, oftentimes these are the problems that fall in roughly three categories. You know, one of them is can we predict certain things in the future mm-hmm. with a good enough accuracy that they become actionable for us? The other thing is, uh, can we say uh, something about the present? Can we explain certain things that that we are seeing, you know? Uh, and then uh, the third thing is, can we augment uh, the work processes of our uh, staff in such a way that they become much more productive? Yeah. Um, so... <clears throat> Just to give you some concrete examples, uh, there was an energy company that uh, came to us with a question, can we predict whether our customers are going to pay their energy bills on time uh, one or two months ahead? Uh, And if they're not going to pay these bills on time, uh, why? Mm. Uh, Both because they have a legal obligation to say so, but also so that they can fine-tune their communications and and a plethora of other things uh, based on the outcomes of this system.
1: And then you... You're an engineer, you're a data scientist, you know nothing about the energy market or human psychology. How do you tackle such a problem?
0: Well, through the time, we have learned a little bit about, uh, you know, all of these aspects. Uh, But obviously, uh, we start uh, with what has become, through the time, our general process. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, first we have an intake where we try to look at what kind of problem are we trying to solve? Uh, Is it realistic? is this really the problem that our customers want solved or do they actually want something slightly different, but they think they want this and then we try to convince them otherwise? Do they have the necessary data sources, et cetera? Uh, Then we build a proof of concept uh, just to verify certain assumptions that we have made. And then based on that, we either proceed or not with a number of phases in which we add more and more data and transform data in several ways until we actually hopefully have a system that works really well. And then finally, we deploy that system.
1: So what would be a reason for you to, after this intake or proof of concept phase, say, you know, this isn't a problem for us. We, we can't do this.
0: Well, obviously, the first one would be that what the customer wants is simply, you know, untenable, it can be done mm-hmm. with the current level of technology and we can make a fair estimation of that. Uh, another one is that, you know, we, we, we cannot help ourselves having uh, very strong uh, opinions grounded in our own ethics yeah. about what we think should be done with technology and how technology should be applied. Yeah. So we have had situations in which we have said no. Because we felt that uh, the prospective customer wanted to apply technology in ways that we did not entirely agree with. Uh, From a
1: moral perspective.
0: Yes. Um, And then finally, uh, of course, if they want something and it can be done, but they don't have the data for it. And we cannot think of other data sources that we could find, obtain and link in order to provide sufficient data. Yeah. Uh, then it's also a no, but it's a provisional no. So we can give an advice on if you start collecting this data, how much time would you need uh, before you actually are ready for us to start with this?
1: So in this case of the energy company, you passed, or they passed maybe, the intake. Right. Um, Then how do you start?
0: Right. So we started by collecting their internal data, uh, which in their case, and, and this is a very nice case because it illustrates, you know, very nicely what we do. Um, uh, it, it was very sparse. So there were a lot of records, you know, a lot like they had tens of millions of records about a uh, past payment behavior of people, etc. Uh, but they had just a very few dimensions of data. So, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of information in it, actually, for the system to work with.
1: They didn't really know much about their customers. Is that what Uh, you're saying? No,
0: exactly, exactly. Uh, And, of course, data was in disparate systems, so we first had to bring them together.
1: But you had Uh, a module for that in your Lego box? Yes, we
0: did. Yes, we did. So uh, the the way we proceeded uh, after building this initial model and establishing a baseline, so how well does it work with just their internal data, Uh, was uh, to transform that internal data into additional derivational data with like tiny machine learning models that make certain predictions, which you then can take with you for further predictions. And then uh, by adding external information. So the first uh, external data source that we used was the uh, CBS database. So that's the Dutch Central Bureau for Statistics Mm -hmm. that has all kinds of information about neighborhoods. So once we added that, uh, we already had a model that performed much better. Uh, but still not sufficiently well for what we wanted to do.
1: Uh, so the internal data had the address. Yes. And you translated that to, is that an urban area or a rural area? Yeah, yeah, or yeah.
0: What, what is the you know, average apartment size? How well is it insulated? What is the usual income level? So there is a lot of very publicly uh, available information that can be linked with internal information, provided that the internal information has the necessary fields. Um, And then uh, even after that, the system didn't perform quite as well as it was expected to. So we were in a bit of a pickle, right? Mm -hmm. And what we thought was, well, uh, we have a hunch, I believe, if you wish, that nothing happens outside of a context. And uh, the context for the, the, the payment of bills might be, you know, the world situation. And the, the idea was just basically, if we have an economic crisis, then we know for a fact that people are going uh, to pay their bills with a lower frequency than uh, if there is no economic crisis and everything goes well economically.
1: And is that something that you and Mark come up with? Yeah.
0: <laughs> that is something that Mark and I come up with, yeah. So... <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, what we what we thought was, okay, so we can think of this one, but there might be thousands of other things that are happening in the world that might be influencing people's psychology that might result in, in good or bad payment behavior. So we started looking for a way to create a very, very rough model, but a very broad model uh, of factors that could be influencing this. And we thought, well, there is nothing that describes the world around us better in this very, very coarse way than the news. So we found a way to process the news through our language processing stack uh, and to come up with certain factors that we could add to the internal data uh, in a way that would be co-modeled. And suddenly we got a model that performed very well. And it gave us a few you know expected results and a number of very unexpected ones, uh, which were kind of funny. Like? Uh, the, the prime of which was uh, that, uh, you know, because we're in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. um, people who, uh, so there's a group of people um, who tends to not pay their bills on time when the soccer clubs Ajax, PSV or Feyenoord... And of course, there is the regional aspect. Uh, <laughs> lose or are just very negatively in the news.
1: So, so the fans are so <laughs> depressed they start not paying their a- bills.
0: Apparently, yes. And we did not we did not uh, see it coming. If you wish, yeah, uh, I but, can imagine. But uh, it was uh, it was a surprising find that we that we derived from the system. And of course, there were a lot of expected ones. So if there is talk about a very sharp winter, pe- people yeah. tend to pay slightly better. Uh, If there is talk about decreasing housing prices, people actually tend to pay a little bit worse. Uh, So, you know, we're not claiming, by the way, a a full causation relationship between these things. That's not how far we have researched it at all. But the correlation is strong enough uh, to yield much more accurate predictions. And not just accurate predictions, but also predictions that we can qualify uh, in the sense of why are people not going to pay on time? Because if we know that... Uh, people are probably not going to pay on time and that they live in a very poor neighborhood in which the, the average income is extremely low, then, uh, and the, the most prominent factor in the prediction is, for, for instance, their postal code, uh, then we know that it's probably because these people don't have money. Mm. Um, if, however, uh, it is their soccer club, uh, which is the most prominent reason in, in a whole, obviously, chain of reasoning that the system applies, Uh, then we know that it's probably not their income, but uh, something else. So
1: that informs also the actions the energy company can take.
0: Exactly. So it it, it makes this actionable uh, along many dimensions. So the way they wanted to use it was uh, one way was uh, optimizing communications. So if you know that people can't pay, uh, it actually doesn't make any sense uh, to, to uh, you know, sell these accounts to, to debt collectors. Yeah, it doesn't with, help. Exactly. They don't which would it. put people even further in debt. Nobody would actually become better of that. So w- one of the things they wanted to do is stop doing that. Because now that they can make the distinctions, they can actually treat these people in a better way. Um, And, uh, you know, on the other hand, for the people who, for instance, can pay to to write them uh, uh, what Monty Python once called a stiff letter. (laughs) If Uh, you're sad
1: because your soccer club lost, you still have to pay your energy bills.
0: Exactly. Um, uh, And the other way was, for instance, that they could see their uh, financial risks coming so they could insure these. So uh, even along, you know, strategic planning, they could do a lot of things. Um, and there, there were some others, uh, other initiatives that they had internally that were not 100% communicated to us, but uh, uh, were in the domains that couldn't be abused, <laughs> according mm-hmm. uh, according to our estimate, uh, that they wanted to apply it for. So, uh, you know, once you make this type of decisions actionable, uh, you can apply it to many, many places provided that your organization is ready to do so.
1: So what's really interesting to me about what you do is how it's, Um, it's kind of creative AI maybe, right? Like you sat in a room with Mark and figured out, hey, I think the news is going to influence how people pay their energy bills. And it turned out to be true. How does that happen in your mind? Where does that come from?
0: Well, we tried to backtrace, you know, uh, if there was no AI and we had to model people's behavior in any aspect, uh, just with a pen and paper, uh, you know, what type of aspects would we write down uh, that might play a role uh, in the decision process uh, and of course uh, there is a lot of deduction going on yeah. so uh, if your mood um, is is a factor then you can think about but what influences your mood hmm. and these can be very personal things uh, and these can be very global things so then we have to make a decision can we get a lot of personal data about these people you know we can't and we shouldn't uh, but can we look at this other aspect? what is happening globally? The answer is yes, and then the deduction again goes so how do we do that? you know what would be data sources for it
1: and that's actually that's not AI that in this case is psychology yeah. and when solving a different problem could be biology or physics that's or right. so so it's extremely multi multidisciplinary what you do that's right
0: and and you need you need a fairly broad um, uh, say area of interests uh, to do this properly which is, I suppose, why people call us after they fail to reach their goals with some other companies. That happens quite a lot.
1: So I can imagine because you combine so many different data sets to mm-hmm. solve your problem that you often run into um, interesting insights, like like what you t- told me about the, the soccer soccer clubs losing. Do you think... You know, do you often think about how else you could apply this? Like y- you gain so many insights about humans and our behaviors and what drives this. You could probably do much more with that than than make us pay our energy bills.
0: Absolutely. So this type of insights, but also the pipelines for collecting and processing data also become parts of our toolkit. So the more we do, the the larger the toolkit becomes. Occasionally, we apply these things to our own projects internally that we launch under different brands. Uh, the, the most recent one is a system that will read the news for you and recommend articles about the same subject but written from a totally different perspective, for instance. Um, and that's
1: now part of your toolbox.
0: Yes, that's part of our toolbox now, yeah. And it actually might be a, a, a product that we will be launching in a few months. I mean, because maybe, already... maybe
1: we should just buy this and stop <laughs> our own. I mean, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore.
0: Yeah, but so, but our experience is that if we just open our toolbox willingly to people, that people usually don't know how to use it because uh, we, we we did do this in the past and people very often would build the systems and then they would call us and say, oh, but it doesn't work. Yeah. And well, yes, it doesn't work because essentially you took a hammer uh, and you try to eat soup with it. You know, that's, not, <laughs> that's not the idea. So you do need quite a bit of knowledge about how to apply these technologies before you can apply them in useful ways.
1: Well, and just like what you told me earlier about, for instance, a topic detection, that's A lot of it is generalized, but that last 20% is usually specialized.
0: Exactly. And uh, uh, the specialized part is the one that uh, gives you the oomph, if you wish, (laughs) that allows you to solve your problem usually. Mm. Yeah. Um, And and again, the same technology can be applied in a plethora of ways, um, but that's not always immediately obvious to everybody. So one of the other things that we did uh, was build an intense detection system. And the idea of that is that somebody can write in just very normal language what they want to do. And then uh, that is translated to tags uh, that exist in a database of all kinds of offerings that might or might not apply to what people want. So, um, this was, by the way, for, for Amsterdam's tourism board. We did a little test. Uh, and uh, they have about 600 and some subjects that are tagged. And these tags are, are fairly arbitrary, they were just something that they thought of internally. And we had to link natural language to that. And we managed to build a system in which you can say, well, tomorrow I would like to take the kids uh, to see a show uh, and then perhaps have a drink with my girlfriend later. And then the system should ideally spit out, you know, like uh, uh, children, um, uh, movies, uh, romance, uh, Mm -hmm. food, stuff like that. Um, So, you know. You cannot do that just by processing the text, yeah. extracting the topics, and expecting that it will work. Yeah, you do yeah. need to make a certain specific link yeah. between that internal database yeah. that the Twitter is have.
1: not going to help you with that.
0: Yeah, so t- Twitter by itself won't, but the basis of this system that actually worked very well uh, was Twitter data. Yeah. So it-, it used Twitter to learn something about understanding language. Uh, but then it was able to abstract this uh, yeah. multiple layers, and uh, finally, through a little piece of middleware that we built specifically for this purpose, translate it to their internal text. Yeah,
1: but you don't have to start from scratch anymore. Exactly,
0: and we we never we almost never have to do that, and that is the beautiful thing about it.
1: And one thing I'm also interested in is you mentioned before that you determine or you find. Um, correlation, right. not causality. Right. And that is one of the big challenges of AI, right? What it does is it discerns patterns, but how do you know if they're predictive? And how do you know if they stay predictive because our world is changing? Yeah.
0: So that, that's a great question. Uh, or actually, these are two great questions. <laughs> uh, the first one is how do you know that it works, right? And uh, the, there are ways and metrics in which you can apply the data that you have uh, by isolating a part of it from the system so the system never gets to see it then training the system on a piece of data uh, that, that you have and then applying it to the data that it has never seen before in order to see how well it performs.
1: Yeah, so you, you use part part of your data set for training and part of your data set to check if it's trained enough. Exactly,
0: exactly. And there are very, very complex ways to, to do this in a way that gives you a, a very large degree of confidence that mm-hmm. what you're doing is correct. Then the second question is, how do you know that it will stay correct? And the simple answer is you don't. Uh, Because, uh, you know, AI systems don't have common sense. Exactly. Unlike humans, they have no basis of reasoning beyond what you have given to them. Uh, And uh, so far, we haven't found a way to input everything that could be known into a computer system. In fact, there is mathematical evidence that you can't do it, just can't. Uh, But I won't go there. Uh, So the only thing that you can do um, is have the system constantly examine itself as well and give you an assessment uh, of its own capabilities in the light of new data. So when new data becomes available, the system can look uh, how much of this data do I know, but also how many of the connections that I have learned uh, about data in general do apply to this new data. And then it can give you a certain confidence number. So the system can tell you, I'm I'm reasoning about this now, uh, but actually I'm not so sure. And at this point, you should always not quite trust the system.
1: <laughs> so if we go back to your energy example, for instance, right. that looks at all the things that happen in the news in the Netherlands in this right. case. So what if something happens in the Netherlands that's never happened before? Like a, a UFO lens. Right. We've never seen that. Right. That's going to have a huge impact. And the system's going to be like, oh, UFO lens. What is that? So what you're saying is your system won't know what to do with the UFO, but it will know something's wrong. I don't understand this.
0: So it will do two things. It It will make a prediction based on what it knows. And if the UFO landing in many of its effects, because it's of course not going to be just one message in that case, it's going to be a lot of messages. In a lot of its effects actually does look quite a lot what a system knows. Uh, it might give a certain degree of confidence uh, in its own decisions, but it also might say, uh, "You know, this information that I've received apparently has a very large impact, uh, but it also contains elements that I have never seen before, and therefore be on the lookout." Uh, I'm making a prediction, but I might not be entirely sure about this prediction. Don't trust so please me. examine me.
1: Yeah, and then they call you again.
0: Uh, yeah, occasionally they uh, they do call us for that, um, but you know, anyway, in general. Uh, It it has been our uh, find just, you know, empirically from experience that the best systems uh, are the ones that combine humans and machines. Um, because humans um, tend to have a certain category of errors that they make, and uh, you know a certain category of disadvantages, like being relatively slow to process information, uh, which luckily for us uh, tend to be uh, exactly opposite to the ones uh, to the strengths and weaknesses of the machine.
1: We're very complementary.
0: Exactly. So if you can find uh, a way to fuse the two together, uh, and usually this happens through good human machine interfaces and the setup of the whole processes around this thought, uh, that's when we actually achieve the best results.
1: So what is the one problem if you could choose from everything in the world that you would like to solve?
0: Mm. Uh, th- that's a very difficult choice to make for me, you know, because there there are many, many problems that I think machines could be applied to solving uh, with varying degrees of difficulty. So, if I'm entirely, you know, not thinking about our uh, uh, practice and what we know, but just thinking about, you know, what is the potential of this technology, say uh, in the short term, uh, I think that we could eradicate hunger, uh, and I think that we could do it by having these autonomous machines that would work under self-contained environments, you know, linked up to energy and water, and you could pretty much automate the food production. Uh, in the long term. Uh, I am confident that we could make uh, humans not entirely necessary in the production process uh, to a very, very high degree, to a degree of ninety eight, ninety nine, or some percent. And of course, under ideal social and political circumstances, this would mean that we free up people to uh, do what I have been privileged enough to do. Namely, pursue their passions, pursue something that they really like, and try to become really good at that without having to concern themselves uh, with what you know many people still consider fairly mundane, going to work every day and trying to be productive in order to make a living
1: so all of us will just do our hobbies all day and have food,
0: yeah, so you know you, you have your hobbies usually to distract you from work uh, and in these case hobbies would be work because once uh, of course, this is just futuristic thinking, but once you're in such a scenario, you're no longer competing with your fellow humans along financial lines, because we don't have a situation of scarcity, we have a situation of It's all of taken care of. Yeah. So, uh, what you do compete with your fellow humans at uh, is the utilization of your talents and passions.
1: How happy you are.
0: Exactly. How happy you are, you know, how good you are at whatever, you know, painting, singing, w- w- whatever is your interest, uh, you know, just pursue that and and shine. And, uh, you know, isn't that what we ultimately all want?
1: Haven't we heard this before? Derek O'Squirrel Squirrel AI also saw artificial intelligence as a path to creative freedom almost. No more obligations, no more scarcity, no more must-dos, but the space to follow our passions. Bruno Jakić, AI Applied.
2: The OG AI People have been telling each other stories since, well, the beginning of our time. One of our famous storytellers of this time, Kurt Vonnegut, held a lecture in 1995 in which he described his theory about the shapes of stories. During this, he drew some examples on a blackboard saying, there is no reason why the simple shapes of stories can be fed into computers. They are beautiful shapes. And yes, why wouldn't they? Vonnegut put the whole theory of emotional arcs in stories into graphical form. Think about story arcs like man falls into hole, man gets out of a hole, and the more complex one, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Story categorizing isn't something new. Aristotle did it some 2,000 years before Vonnegut, and many followed. And now, some 20 years after Vonnegut's graphs, Andrew Reagan at the Computational Story Lab at the University of Vermont in Burlington and a few pals, these guys have used sentiment analysis to map the emotional arcs on over 1700 English works of fiction that had each been downloaded from the Project Gutenberg website more than 150 times. What did they get? Well, six basic emotional arcs. A steady, ongoing rise in emotional valence, as in a Rex to riches story such as Alice's Adventures Underground by Lewis Carroll. A steady, ongoing fall in emotional valence, as in tragedy such as Romeo and Juliet. A fall, then rise, such as the man in a hole story, discussed by Vonnegut. A rise, then a fall, such as the Greek myth of Icarus. Then you have rise, fall, rise, such as Cinderella or fall, rise, fall, such as Oedipus. Of course, many books follow more complex arcs at more fine-grained resolution. And will the story arcs differ per language, country, culture? Andrew and his boys have a lot to figure out. And the most popular story arc, the Icarus and Oedipus arcs, and the stories that follow more complex arcs that use the basic building blocks in sequence. Which results in a kinda two sequential man-in-hole arcs and the Cinderella arc followed by a tragedy. Sounds like my life, walking in two holes at the same time, losing a shoe. So start
1: thinking outside of the box and soon enough all of us will be freed from the modernities we have to deal with today. Or just break out that vintage Duplo. Or a Nintendo Switch. Whatever floats your boat. Follow me for more at bnr.nl slash AI podcast or on your favorite podcast app.